This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I know that a lot of you out there uh, are worried about the international situation, particularly the possibility that North Korea could get up to some mischief or that Donald Trump could get up to some mischief trying to punish North Korea. Either way, we find ourselves looking at some sort of Dr. Strange Love scenario. I don't know about you, dear listener, but it seems most people I know on Facebook have rediscovered Dr. Strange Love of late. Various people have put Donald Trump's head onto the Slim Pickens figure as he rides the H bomb down to begin the end of the world. People are quoting Tony Schwartz, who spent 16 months putting together Trump's autobiography for him. As noting before the election, he was really concerned that if Donald Trump got the keys to the nuclear codes, we might be in a lot of trouble. But the truth is, we're not that worried about what politicians say, because what politicians say, what translates into action, are, are generally a very long way apart. This goes in particular, this seems to be particularly true for goofball third world countries like North Korea, which might be the the world's goofiest nation. We had the privilege of interviewing Tony Wheeler on this show, I guess it was about a year or two ago. He talked about his book, Badlands, and and related uh, uh, how it was that when people would ask him um, what his favorite country was, he really was stuck for an answer because there's so many countries he enjoys. But he said answering the question of what was the, the strangest country in the world was very, very easy because North Korea took the cake hands down. So yeah, you've got this very strange little nation that claims it's got nuclear weapons. I suppose it did some tests that we think demonstrated that it did have nuclear weapons. It make no, makes noise about having intercontinental ballistic missiles and then shoots off a few pathetic efforts that plop into the Sea of Japan. Um, one thing I think should be kept in mind is that Kim Jong-un though he may have bats in his belfry, appears to really enjoy being the dictator of his country. Why would he invite having his entire landscape turned into radioactive Rice Krispies by attacking the United States with a nuclear weapon? Well, chances are he wouldn't. Now, there are crazy people out there we do want to be sure never do get nuclear weapons or do our level best to make sure that they don't. But, you know, chiefs of state are generally not in the category known as the suicide bomber. I was working out in the gym the other day, and I noticed they were, I think it was on CNN, doing a a program uh, describing how it was Trump got to be president. And it was reviewing the entire history of Donald J. Trump, including those highlights moments where during the campaign, thousands of people at his rallies were saying, lock her up, lock her up. And of course, I I think that was Roger Stone in action, just knowing how to foment hate and channel people's negative energies in ways that get things done that Roger would like to see done. One of the things he really wanted to see done since 1988 was the election of Donald Trump. I don't know. All we're going to say, I think, at this point is that, well, he is the president for now. He does appear to be... A psychopath, a sociopath. I mean, it's becoming, I think, clear to even members of the Republican Party. At this point in time, Republicans have announced that they're going to challenge him in 2020. He's only been president six months. This is unprecedented in my lifetime. Yeah, I mean, people are announcing they're going to run for president. A bunch of, you know, 
nutty Republicans on the fringe, but still, the fact that they think they see an opportunity here is telling. Also telling is the fact that last week uh, it was revealed in the Washington Post that Trump personally dictated a misleading press statement about his son Donald Jr. meeting with a Russian lawyer during the 2016 campaign. The Post reported that Trump reportedly crafted his statement about the June 2016 meeting while flying home from last month's G20 summit in Germany. He overruled aides who argued for full disclosure. The press release said that Don Jr. and Russian lawyer Natalia Velesnikaya primarily discussed a program about the adoption of Russian children, which was not a campaign issue at the time. Several days later, Trump Jr. admitted that he actually sat down with Velesnikaya because she promised damaging information on Hillary Clinton. Trump's personal lawyer, Jay Sokolow, has repeatedly denied Trump played any role in writing or reviewing the statement. And White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders conceded that the president had weighed in, quote, just as any father would, unquote. Well, I don't know about you, but if I'd gone out there and committed some criminal act, I'm not sure that my old man would have written a note lying about it for my benefit. Anyway, I feel like just jumping around today like we did last week and I think the week before. Uh, Try and do some science topics and technology topics in today's program because those, those tend to be up subjects. But we got a few things from the miscellaneous file that frankly are somewhat irresistible. Like this item from The Week magazine. A dozen inmates escaped from an Alabama jail this week with the help of peanut butter. The inmates saved peanut butter from their sandwiches and used it like modeling clay to alter a number above an exit door to look like the ones above their cells. A rookie guard later opened the door, thinking he was letting a prisoner back into his cell. Twelve inmates then walked through the disguised exit, scaled a barbed wire fence, and scattered in less than ten minutes. All but one of the escapees, who were facing charges ranging from disorderly conduct to attempted murder, were recaptured within eight hours. The last fugitive was caught two days later in Florida, more than 750 miles from the jail. Sheriff William D. Snyder of Martin County said, I can tell you this, he won't be getting peanut butter. Now, we, we don't know in advance whether we're going to preempt next week's show, but um, it is a fact that Mr. Millen and I are going to try and travel north to eastern Oregon in order to view what is being called the Great American Eclipse. This will be the first eclipse since 1918, visible from coast to coast in the U.S. We hope... Uh, a couple of weeks from now, I'll be able to give you a full report on some adventures north of the California-Oregon border. But doggone it, let's let's do some more miscellaneous stuff. And I I, I have in my right hand right now uh, an item we did a few weeks ago, which I'm I'm still laughing over. This was truly a miscellaneous item. We discussed how the Georgia Superior Court was being sued by the ACLU on behalf of a couple who wanted to give their kid a name the authorities didn't approve of. And I don't know, maybe maybe you should be free to name your child Zakela Graceful Lorraine Allah. But frankly, we find ourselves having to agree with the good folks down in Georgia that some names just aren't appropriate to, to, to just, you know, give to your child. We would agree that irresponsible parents should not be able to label a child fat meat, 
or fish and chips or stud duck. And in particular, one we found especially objectionable. Tula does the hula in Hawaii. And it's not because we don't like Hawaii or don't like the hula. We consider it a wonderful art form. But damn it, when you're filling out a job application, you shouldn't have to write out Tula does the hula in Hawaii. It's just wrong. And in that same goofball spirit, let's 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 pull another miscellaneous item out, which is the following. A panicked Ohio woman called 911 to report that her five-foot-long boa constrictor had wrapped itself around her head and was biting her nose. The unnamed 45-year-old woman called to say, I have a boa constrictor stuck on my face. The 911 dispatcher responded, I've never heard of this one before. Firefighters were dispatched and arrived at the woman's home to find her lying on the driveway with her serpent coiled around her neck. When they couldn't pry the boa off her bleeding nose, they had to cut off its head with a pocket knife. The woman, who owns 10 other snakes, was treated at a hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. You know, after having gone to Florida and seeing what people that own Burmese pythons have done to the Everglades, I was kind of rooting for a Darwin Award winning on this one. If firefighters have to cut the head off your pet that is wrapped around your neck trying to strangle you while biting your nose, well, you know, you... That, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. I don't know. I'm tempted to put a disclaimer here, note that that is my opinion alone, but I'm not even sure that is my opinion. Aww. That's just how loose we have things this summer of 2017 here in Radio Parallax. All right, continuing in the miscellaneous file, how about this one? Honolulu has become the first major U.S. city to pass legislation aimed at reducing injuries and deaths from distracted walking by what are described as smartphone zombies. Starting on October 25th, Honolulu pedestrians can be fined between $15 and $99 for looking at their phone or tablet while crossing the street. We say go Honolulu. All right, we'd like to do stats in this program, and one that is pretty irresistible is the fact that after several Republican attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, 64% of Americans now want to keep it, quote, entirely as is, unquote, or keep it after fixing, quote, problem areas, unquote. This is up from 54% last January. Yes, after the American public has apparently elected Donald J. Trump to eliminate Obamacare, he has failed to do so and increased its popularity. Now, uh, we love The Week magazine, and we we often uh, really enjoy their wit and wisdom section and frequently use those items for our quips or quotes, as the case may be, on a given week. But I was really baffled by the August 11th issue's section on wit and wisdom because <laughs> uh, I, I didn't see that there was a lot of either in any of the quotes. See if you can suss this one out, dear listener. They quoted novelist Rachel Cusk as saying, 
Quote, Consider the pizza. It is like a smiling face. It assuages the fear of complexity by showing everything on its surface. Unquote. Hmm. Calling Dr. Andy Jones. <laughs> we may have to use our phone a friend. And um, how about this quote from what's described as memoirist Roxanne Gay? Quote, The frustrating thing about cages is that you're trapped, but you can see exactly what you want. You can reach out from the cage, but only so far. Unquote. Uh, yeah. I don't know. They, they can't all be gems. All right. Fortunately, we have... Um, a quote I like very much, to balance those off. Um, this comes from the current issue of New Scientist magazine, our, our favorite science magazine. Between that and The Week and The Economist, we could almost produce a radio show on a weekly basis. The editorial at the start of the current issue is, is on Internet giants and how they may need to be treated like water suppliers. I think I'll read most of the editorial in a moment, but I'm going to skip uh, to the near the end of it because they had a quote that was just a barn burner. Said the editors, Facebook's footprint as a distributor of news is expanding without any of the oversight you might expect from a press freedom watchdog. Yet we know that Facebook is a prolific vehicle for fake news and that political agitators exploit the platform for their own ends. This week, the first proof emerged that Facebook's new feed can be systematically hijacked to sway people's political opinions. Right now, efforts to filter out the most harmful contents are largely a volunteer exercise undertaken by Google and Facebook when their bottom lines are under threat. Such action is better than nothing. But as the old saying goes, and we like this old saying, self-regulation stands in relation to regulation the way self-importance stands in relation to importance. Anyway, at any rate, to excerpt most of the editorial, I would note that they start out asking whether Facebook, Google, and Amazon, which are monopolies, uh, might need to be regulated like utility companies. They note that this anti-free market position has reportedly won an unlikely champion in the White House in the form of chief strategist and presidential right-hand man Steve Bannon. Bannon's position is that these services have become an essential component of modern life, yet trend toward a natural monopoly status. Hence, like water and energy suppliers, they should be regulated to protect consumers. Bannon's contention was met with widespread derision in the tech world. After all, these services are both free and optional. Nobody will freeze to death in their house or catch dysentery because they didn't pay their Facebook bill. And even if they are monopolistic, their particular monopolies do consumers no harm. At least, that's the argument. The idea went down badly in political circles, too. It flies directly in the face of the U.S. government's bid to abolish net neutrality, which demands that broadband is treated as a public utility and obliges Internet service providers to make it available as a, at a reasonable price. Opponents want to allow ISPs to privilege certain websites, loading some faster than others, for example. Never mind the apparent contradiction, Bannon and company are clearly aware that they are pressing issues around monopoly and public good that need to be settled sooner rather than later. Magazine asks, but how? Answering the starting point has to be that web services are neither 
an option, nor as free as their providers would have us believe. Search, online shopping, and socializing are woven into the fabric of life, and avoiding them is increasingly inconvenient. The currency we exchange for them is personal data. It then goes on to the quote I read to you previously about the bigger issue being the social cost of informational monopolies. But the magazine does note that a sensible option would appear to be some form of regulation, and the utilities model is a good starting point. That doesn't mean government ownership. Anyone who wants to supply tap water, for example, simply needs to obey a certain set of agreed standards. And while a city's water supply has to meet certain minimum criteria, individuals remain free to get their water from unregulated and free sources. Regulating these internet giants, like utilities, could bring similar standards to information. People would still be free to poison their minds with the internet equivalent of sewage, but nobody would have it dripped into their pipeline by an unfettered and unaccountable monopoly. We think they raised some good points. The truth is, Facebook acts like you're the customer. But in reality, you're the product. The real customer is the person buying the information about you. And using what Facebook has learned about you to know how to best sell to you. And then we get into the political area, which is frightening indeed. The news and technology section, I think, is worth quoting from as well, piece by Timothy Revel. It asks, could Facebook really tip the balance in an election? Over the past year, firms like Aggregate Q and Cambridge Analytics have been credited with using AI-targeted ads on social media to help swing the Brexit referendum and the U.S. presidential election. But a lack of evidence meant we have never known whether the technology exists to make this possible. A study detailing the process from start to finish is finally providing some insight. They quote a researcher saying, this is the first time I've seen all the dots connected. At the heart of the debate is psychographic targeting, the directing of political campaigns at people via social media based on their personality and political interests. It is aided by a vast amount of data filtered by artificial intelligence. They note in the piece that Facebook doesn't explicitly provide the tools to target people based on political opinions, but the new study shows how the platform can be exploited. Using combinations of people's interests, demographics, and survey data, it's possible to direct campaigns at individuals based on their acceptance of ideas and policies. This could have a big impact on the success of campaigns, and I dare say that it has already. They quote Chris Sumner at the Online Privacy Foundation, which presented some work at DEFCON in Las Vegas, saying the weaponized, artificially intelligent propaganda machine is effective. You don't need to move people's political dials much to influence an election. Just a couple of percentage points to the left or right. They note that Sumner's study clearly reveals a form of political campaigning with no checks and balances. Facebook allows targeted advertising so long as the company's use of external data adheres to the law. At any rate, after studying how one can gather this data, the team created four different Facebook ad campaigns tailored to the personalities they identified using both pro and anti-surveillance messages. This was based on an authoritarianism score. They discovered that high on the list of, of statements that divide people was, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear. 
And by administering various personality tests to different groups, they found traits that correlate with how likely you are to agree with that statement on Internet privacy. At any rate, by selecting out the people that agreed with that message, they were able to get 20 times the number of likes and shares. And they note that changing political opinions doesn't have to be the end game. What about simply dissuading people from voting? We know it's really easy to convince people not to go to the polls, said one researcher. Prime at the right time and you can have a big effect. Many people claim this is exactly what happened in the 2016 election as Cambridge Analytics and others targeted people who were likely to be Hillary Clinton voters. Well, in this case, it was black people likely to be Hillary Clinton voters and flooded them with messages about how the Clintons had really done nothing to help black people in order to discourage a lot of black people from bothering to go to the polls. Judging by the election results in several key states, this was apparently effective. And speaking of the DEFCON conference, some things came out there we've been pounding on in this program for years. I think I'm just going to read the, the little blurb on this item as well. The magazine noted that a voting machine hacked to play Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up might seem amusing, but there's a sting in the tail. At the annual DEFCON security conference in Las Vegas last week, researchers proved that in the time it takes to watch a movie, someone could access and alter votes on a machine used in U.S. elections. Some of the hacks were even done wirelessly. For the event, DEFCON purchased 30 voting machines from eBay and government auctions. 90 minutes after participants were let loose, the first machines succumbed with vote rigging and rickrolling occurring soon after. Rickrolling referring to the Rick Astley tune. One of the machines was still running Windows XF, so delegates used an exploit known since 2003 to gain access via its Wi-Fi. Hackers anywhere could use this trick to attack. Other exploits involved prying open mechanical locks covering USB ports or spotting uncovered ports on the back. One team then simply plugged in a mouse and keyboard to gain control. One possible defense is to insist on end-to-end verifiability, relying on similar techniques to those used in encryption. It would mean all voters get a digital receipt recording how they voted. When run through software that checks it against the official record of votes cast, any anomaly would indicate that voting had been compromised. Well, we're not going to see that. And judging by the stifled yawn across the country in response to this news from DEFCON, I I think that we're not going to protect our voting machines, and I think they, frankly, have been hacked on many occasions. We will continue to follow this sad and disturbing story. Now, as much as we love new scientists, I'm sometimes puzzled by little items that appear in it. I'm puzzled by this one. It says in the magazine that DNA is extracted from five skeletons buried 3,700 years ago in what is now Lebanon confirms that the enigmatic Canaanite people live on. The area has seen waves of immigration throughout history, but people in Lebanon today still share 90% of their DNA with the ancient skeletons, to which Radio Parallax would like to respond with a, duh, we don't talk about religion a great deal in this program, but we, we did note on more than one occasion, I think, that what the Hebrew people referred to as the Canaanites, those that were living in the Jordan River Valley, in what Moses and company described as 
the land of milk and honey we were promised. Well, as you may or may not know, the, the Israelites successfully drove out the Canaanites from this area, but they relocated not that far away on the coast, the coast of what today is modern Lebanon. The Greeks referred to these same people, the Canaanites, who are now living on the coast, as the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians spread from what is today Lebanon to what is today Tunisia, founding the great city of Carthage, which was a rival to Rome. The Romans fought three wars against Carthage, the second of which was quite a rousing tale. We would like to refer you to our archives uh, at radioparallax.com for our wonderful interview with the author of the book Hannibal and Me, which described how an enterprising Carthaginian general known to history as Hannibal damn near took down the Roman Empire. But in spite of winning battle after battle after battle, ultimately, he and the Carthaginians lost the war. In fact, that was such a good segment, Mr. Wayland. I think we should excerpt it in, in the second segment today. What do you say? All right. Final item for today's program, which is near and dear to me, having been a practicing physician, and I, I guess technically I still am, for the past three-plus decades. I've had many a discussion over the years on the topic of antibiotics. So I was quite intrigued by this piece, naturally in New Scientist, with the headline, Is It Really Okay to Stop Taking Antibiotics Early? Article by Jessica Hamzalow noted how the writer, at one point in her career, was given antibiotics for some pain, and, and when she felt better, she stopped taking them and then worried later that she'd made a mistake. Because after all, if you stop taking your antibiotics for the doctor's full course, you will get lectured by the doctor. I know this, because... I've delivered many such lectures. But in the magazine, the author said, really, I had nothing to worry about. Growing evidence suggests that short courses of antibiotics can be just as effective at killing bacteria as longer ones. And they don't increase the risk of antibiotic resistance, at least for common infections that most people receive antibiotics for. In fact, she suggests, it is the longer courses that cause problems. In 2010, Analysis of 24 studies, which included thousands of patients with respiratory and urinary tract infections, found that people on longer courses of antibiotics were more likely to develop antibiotic-resistant infections. And, uh, you know, we've seen that often enough in medicine. The article notes that the reason for this, at least they're speculating the reason for this, is that most of the drug-resistant infections that we are worried about stem from bacteria that normally live in peace on and in our bodies. When we take antibiotics, we wipe out friendly gut bacteria along with the harmful ones. The disruption in the ecosystem can allow once friendly bacteria from elsewhere in the body to colonize where they can turn hostile and cause problems. Interesting analysis. But for the closure here, I'm really intrigued by the fact that when the question was asked, why do so many prescriptions tend to last one or two weeks? They note that Martin Llewellyn at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in the UK, tried to find the origin of antibiotic prescription lengths. He struggled, noting, quote, It appeared that people working in the 1950s arrived at these probably because they were worried that people would otherwise skimp on treatment or because they were afraid of resistance. Antibiotics are often prescribed in multiples of five or seven days. 
This is probably because these numbers correspond to the number of fingers on a hand and the number of days in a week. But, says Llewellyn, there's no medical basis. Oh dear, I'm fairly certain that's true. And I think I'm just going to take a pause right now and see if Mr. McMillan can pull Hannibal out of our archives and, and have a wonderful trip back down memory lane. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 